Well, take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 17. I want to welcome everyone uh, for our worship time this morning, those that are right here uh, gathered in our sanctuary, those who are worshiping in our summit service, uh, those that are worshiping in our overflow today, in our mask-required area, and of course those that are worshiping at home. Uh, We're going to have, we've already had, a great day of worship And we shall continue. So John chapter 17 is a prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus, the entire chapter, 26 verses. It's the prayer that he prayed the night before he was crucified. Jesus knew the divine itinerary. He knew what was going to happen in the next 12 hours. He knew, in fact, in the next hour or so that he would be on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane under such stress that he was sweating blood and he would be crying out to the Father, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus prays this prayer we have in John chapter 17. This is one of the most beautiful expressions that we have in all the Bible of the heart and the mind of Christ. I can't wait to share with you again today about this incredible prayer. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking. Uh, We said as we began that one of the ways to tell what is most important to a person is to look at the content of his prayers. If something is important to you, you pray about it. If you don't pray about it, it's not very important to you. Well, right here we see what Jesus prays for. He had just finished preaching a message or teaching a message, if you will, to his disciples. John chapter 15, John chapter 16, he'd given these men uh, really his last words before the crucifixion, his last teaching before the crucifixion. And then he comes to the end of that message. The Bible says in John 17, 1, that he stops, he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, now I want to speak to you. And so we're going to continue to study John chapter 17. Today I want to begin reading in verse 20. We've learned over the last few weeks that the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples. And then these last verses, 20 through 27, Jesus prays for us. So let's look at them together. He says, I pray not only for these, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And so this is an active belief. He's talking about those who have chosen to believe, those who have put their faith in Christ. He's praying for those people. He is praying for us. Verse 21, may they all be one as you're, <clears throat> pardon me, as, as you are one, you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. And so he he talked about this unity, this oneness in the verses we looked at last week when he was addressing God about the disciples. Now, as he's talking about us, he prays again, let them be unified. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now I want you to notice those last few words because that's surprising to me. 
He says, Father, you have loved them, you have loved us just like you have loved your son Jesus. Can you imagine? This says that God loves us the same way that God loves Jesus. Now we know that there are all kinds of love. There, there are different levels of love. There are different characteristics of love. Uh, for instance, the Bible says that I'm to love my neighbor. The Bible also says I am to love my wife. Now I love my neighbor and I love my wife, but I don't love them in the same way, right? And the Bible even supports that because it characterizes the kind of love I should have for my wife. It says that I should love my wife like Christ loved the church. It says I should love my wife like I love my own body. That's a special kind of love. And so I love my neighbor with one kind of love. I love my wife with another kind of love. So how is it that God loves us? Does he love us with one kind of love and loves Jesus with a different kind of love? No. He says here in this verse, and he's going to say it again when we get down to verse 26, that God loves us with the same love that he loves that he loves Jesus. That is amazing. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. So here's an expression. Listen, church. Here's an expression that, that Christ loves us. And he tells us, though, not just that Christ loves us in these verses. He tells us how Christ loves us. We all know the words to the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the rest of it? For the Bible tells me so. But how does the Bible tell us so? What does the Bible say to convince us of the love of Christ? I think right here in these verses, the Bible shows us three things about Christ's love. It shows us what Christ's love looks like. You can see it in three different ways. Number one, we can see Christ's love in the fact that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. We've already seen that back in verse 20. He prays. He prays for us. We've said that you can tell what's most important to a person by what he prays for, by what she prays for, and Jesus prays for us. Isn't that amazing? Just think about that a moment. Just imagine that Jesus, the one who created the world, the one who sustains the world every moment of every day, that Jesus prays for us. I, I, I spent some time this week just trying to, just trying to fully comprehend what that means, and I, I think it's an impossible task. But let me share just some illustrations with you, some some pretty sort of cheesy illustrations. But I, I think I, I can share these and make a point to help us to understand just how amazing it is that Christ loves us. So imagine the bank that I use here in Nacogdoches, the bank that I that I. Uh, that's my bank here in Nacogdoches. And so I bank with them every day and every week. Well, let's imagine that tomorrow their board of directors gets together. And they have an agenda and they go through all of the banking issues that they have to deal with. But before they close the meeting, the chairman of the board of the bank says, we can't leave until we talk about our most 
important, our most valuable customer, Noel Deer. Let's see how we can, how we can help Noel Deer. Now you laugh because you know. <laughs> well, let me give you another illustration and I'll, <laughs> I'll draw these together. Let's imagine that tomorrow the governor, the governor of Texas, he convenes his advisors and they all come together and he looks at these men and he looks at these women and he says, today there's only one thing on the agenda. What can we do for Noel Deer? Imagine. Now let me give you one more because I want to draw these together. Imagine the president. He gets up and he, he goes through his daily briefing. The president's daily briefing. Does this every day. And they share with him all the important things that are going on around the world. They share with him intelligence from all of these clandestine sources. And he hears all this important information. And, and they finally finish the daily briefing. And he looks up at his aides and he says, okay, that's done. Now, how's Noel doing? Now, you know, the truth is, uh, the, the bank has no idea uh, who, who I am. The governor has never heard of me. The president has never heard of me. But Jesus Christ, on the night before he was crucified, just before he was to give his life, he says, the hour has come. He stopped, he paused, and he prayed for me. Isn't that amazing? He prayed for you. I, I thought about it from a different perspective. From time to time in the morning, somebody will text me. Sometimes it's, it's one of you or it's a family member. Uh, sometimes it's a pastor friend of mine from here or somewhere else. And I'll get a text in the morning and it'll say simply, Noel, I just want you to know I've prayed for you today. And let me tell you that nothing sets my heart on fire more than that. It just, it, it's, it's, I can't communicate to you just how important that is to me, just how valuable that is. Now, the best texts come from my wife, but, but, but if anybody will text me in the morning and say, I've paused this morning and I'm praying for you, uh, that means so much to me. And the reason is because I know if you stopped in your busy morning with all the things you have to pray for, if you prayed for me, I feel loved, I feel accepted. Uh, that's just about the, the best thing that can happen in the morning when I, when I get those texts. Well, when we come to John chapter 17, verse 20, this is a text from Jesus. I talked to the Father about you this morning. And this isn't just a one-time thing. The Bible goes on to say that that Jesus continues to pray for us. Romans 8.34 and, and, and many other verses tell us that, that Christ's ministry now is a, is a ministry of intercession for us. He continues to pray for us. How can we see the love of Christ? We can see it in the fact that he prays for us. Let me show you the second picture we see of the love of Christ right here. Not only that he prays for us, but he desires our presence. He desires our presence. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. He says, Father, there's something I, 
I'm asking for. There's something I desire. It's important to me, Father. Here's what I want you to do. I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that those who, are, who will follow me, I pray that they will be with me. And then look at those last three words I read, where I am. Those are my favorite three words in this verse. He says, Father, I want these children, I want my brothers and sisters, I want them to be where I am. You know, I learned something about three years ago that I thought I knew before, but I was wrong. I didn't. I learned three years ago how important it is that my kids sleep at my house. So three years ago, my oldest daughter, Hannah, she, she moved out. Uh, she went to college, and, but it's a million miles away, and uh, it, she just moved out. I guess in some sense she still, it's home, but, but really no, she's moved out. In fact, she doesn't come home anymore, she visits us. And I can't stand when she says that. You don't visit this house, this is home. She's gone three years. I talk to her on the phone, and, and we text, and we do FaceTime, and I see her. But she's not home. And then my, my middle daughter left me about a year and a half ago. <laughs> she's a little closer, but, but still hours away. And it, it, it hurts a dad's heart. I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, you'll get used to this one day. But I don't think I will. Uh, Emily came home last weekend. My, my youngest daughter, it was her birthday. And Emily wanted to come in and surprise her for her birthday. And... Uh, that, it meant more to me than it did my youngest daughter. Why is it so important to me that my girls are home? It's not that I need them to do something. It's not that, you know, we need to work something out and we need to see each other face to face. No, it's just that I want them with me. That is a function of my love for them. I just want them near. So what does Jesus pray to his father? He says, Father, I'm asking you, bring them into my presence where I am. That's where, that's where I want them. Now, can I use some bad grammar on purpose here? Because I think it just makes a point. If we were to translate verse 24 into redneck, <laughs> Jesus would say, Lord, I want them where I am at. I mean, that's the emphasis here, right? He, 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 Jesus is everywhere. And Jesus is with us wherever we go. Just like I love my kids wherever they go. I'm a phone call away. But I want them where I am at. And Jesus wants us where he is at. That's an expression of his love. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that says this. You're probably even more familiar with John 14, 3. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may be also. This is his desire. He desires our presence. Just think about that a moment. He desires our presence. It's a function of his love. I... Studying this this week, I, I thought of some verses that say, that say it the other way around. And in fact, there are dozens of them in Scripture that talk about how wonderful it is for us to be in his presence. And let me just give you a few of them. 
Psalm 1611, uh, David says, in your presence. Lord, in your presence is abundant joy. Psalm 1715, I will be satisfied with your presence. Psalm 7328, God's presence is my good. All of that is true. But what this verse tells us in John 17, that the mirror of that truth is also true. God wants me, Jesus wants me in his presence. How can we see the love of Jesus? He prays for me and he desires that I would be with him where he is. And then there's a third way I think we see the love of Jesus here. Jesus came and died for you. Now, verse 25, you have to read this closely. It says, righteous father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. What does he mean that, father, you have sent me? Sent him where? Sent him to Jerusalem? Sent him to Israel? Sent him to earth? Is this talking about the incarnation? What does he mean, you have sent me? And, and if you think about it, if, if you go back and read all of John chapter 17, you'll see that this phrase, you have sent me, is repeated over and over and over. I'll just show it to you. All the way back up in verse 3, the verse ends, the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 4, how does it end? They have believed that you sent me. If you look at verse 18, it says, as you sent me. If you look at verse 21, it says, the world may believe you sent me. If you look at verse 23, you have sent me. And then verse 25 that we read over and over and over. In fact, you find it 34 times in the Gospel of John, three more times in the book of 1 John. This is the theme of everything John says. What does it mean that, that God has sent Jesus? Well, it's talking about the crucifixion. It is, it is shorthand. It is a code word, if you will, for the, for the crucifixion that Jesus has been sent, sent to die for, the, for our sins, for the guilt, for the payment of our sins. God has sent him, not to Jerusalem, not to, not to Bethlehem, but he has sent him to the cross. And Jesus has been obedient to go to the cross or will be obedient to go to the cross for our salvation. You, you see this spelled out, I think, in some other verses. John 3, 17. You know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But listen to John 3, 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son to save the world through him. Jesus was sent for the purpose of saving us from our sin, the cross of Christ. 1 John 4.10, I think, explains it in an even clearer manner. He says, God sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. When you see that phrase in John, sent me, sent me, sent me, he's talking about the crucifixion. How can we, how can we see the love of Christ? What does the love of Christ look like? Christ was sent. Christ came to pay the penalty uh, for our for our sins. I, I, I think this is best, I think we can understand this best, best when we look at two extremes. Both of these are realities. Both of these are true. On one hand, we have the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God. Now, that's not a topic we talk about a lot, right? But it's certainly something that we find in Scripture. Over and over, the Bible talks about the wrath of God. Let me give you some examples. It talks about the hatred of God. Psalm 5.5, the boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. Who hates all evildoers? God hates all evildoers. That's what it says. The hatred of God. And, and then the anger of God. Exodus 32, 9 and 10, the Lord said this. I have seen this people and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Who's going to destroy them because of his anger? God's going to destroy them. God, the wrathful God is a God of judgment. Uh, we think about Genesis chapter 6, the, the worldwide flood. Uh, we, we make this into a nice decoration for our uh, for nurseries, for babies. But if you think about it, this was a pretty, a, a pretty difficult event. Everybody in the world died except eight people, men and women and children. Everybody died because, because of their sin and because of the judgment of God. I think about Sodom and Gomorrah. God wiped two cities off the face of the earth because of their sin. And then, of course, we think about eternal damnation. We, we talked about that a few a few weeks ago, that, that if we die without Christ, that we are, we are sent to hell for all eternity and the torment of hell for all of eternity. So on one extreme, we have the, the wrath of God. Now, how do, how do people deal with that? How do, how do we explain that? Well, often you hear people say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Have you heard that? God hates the sin but he loves the sinner. Is that true? Well, it's sort of true, it's, it's technically true, but I think what people mean when they say that, that's not true, and certainly what people hear when somebody else says that, that's not true. I mean, God does hate sin, and God does love the sinner, but in the end, God doesn't send the sin to hell, it's not the sin that will gnash its teeth for all eternity, it's the people that go to hell. And so the wrath of God can't be denied. I'll read to you just a little bit of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. You probably know that name. And if you know that name, you probably know the, the sermon that he is most famous for, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, 1741. Uh, it was a sermon that really sparked a revival. But it was a sermon when he preached it, people just wept. People shouted with fear. Let me read to you just one paragraph. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, that God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Now, we don't preach like that. 
now. But there's nothing in that paragraph that's not true and that's not supported in Scripture. So on one extreme, there is, there is the wrath of God. But thankfully, there's another extreme, right? And that's the love of God. L- listen to 1 John 4, 7. Now, the love of God, it, it doesn't take as much work to convince you of this, so I'll be brief. But, but, but look at 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. God is, God is love. Love comes from him. He goes on to say, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the other extreme. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He loved us so much that he sent his only son to come and die for us so that we could have eternal life. The love of God. So you've got these two extremes, the wrath of God and the love of God. Sometimes you see them one verse after the next, right next to each other. Let me read these verses to you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Here's what the Lord said. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In that verse, God says that I am against sin, I will punish sin, and I, and I will make the punishment last. And then what does he say in the next verse, very next verse? He says, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. He said, but I will love you and my love will last. So how do we reconcile these two things together? The wrath of God, the love of God. Listen, it's not as simple as saying God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Uh, Well, as I said, there, there are ways in which that is true. But, but if we use that to deny that God is, God is a God of wrath, then, then we've, we have then said something that's just not true. So how do we reconcile that God is a God of wrath? He really is. And God is a God of love. He really is. How can you put those together? Well, they come together in Jesus, right? The Bible says that God is just. That means he demands a punishment and he never relents from punishment. That God is just, but he's also the justifier. He demands the punishment, but then he, he pays the penalty himself. And he does that in Jesus. Jesus is the one who reconciles the fact that God is a God of wrath when it comes to sin. And God is a God of love when it comes to his people. How can those both be true? They're true in Jesus being sent, dying on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God, paying the penalty that is due, and allowing God to love us because we've been forgiven and we've been clothed in righteousness as the song we sang a few minutes ago says, 1 John 4, 9, God's love was revealed in this way. This is how God's love was revealed. God sent, there's that word again, God sent his one and only son into the world. So how can we see the love of Christ? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But what does the Bible say? It says that Jesus prays for me. It says that Jesus desires that I would be in his presence. And it says that Jesus has died for me to satisfy the justice of God and make a way for me to have a relationship with the Father. 
And one of the most tragic things that you ever see in earthly relationships is unrequited love. Do you know what that is? Am I saying it right? It's, it's the subject of novels and songs and movies. Unrequited love is when one person loves another person. I mean, dearly loves them. But the second person is just oblivious to it. The second person doesn't recognize the love, doesn't, doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't respond to it. And it makes a good storyline in a, in a book or, or a movie. But you know, the greatest tragic thing is when Christ's love is unrequited. When Christ's love is not acknowledged, it's not embraced, and it's not returned. See, every one of us, when we see, when we hear about the love of Christ, we have to respond. So let me tell you two, quickly, two ways to respond to Christ's love that we've seen this morning. First, we have to embrace this love once for all in order to establish, to have established a relationship with God. We are separated from God because of our sins. We are so separated that there's nothing in our rebellious, stubborn hearts we can do to ever reconcile that. But Christ has done it because he loves us. And if we can accept that our only hope is what Christ has done, and if we can say, Christ, thank you for your love, your unmerited, undeserved love that brings me forgiveness. And that's what I depend upon. That's what I'm going to trust. And that's all that I'm trusting. And I surrender my life to you. That's, that's how we respond to this love. Not, not just by saying Jesus loves me. Not, not, not by just, just having this idea in our heart. We have to surrender to it. We have to embrace it. This morning, if you've never embraced the love of Christ, we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to be standing here with another minister at our summit service. There will be ministers standing in the front. You just come and take somebody's hand and say, today, I want to embrace the love of Christ for the first time. I've known about it. I've talked about it. But I'm so impressed today with the love of Christ, I need to embrace it. But there's another way. We need to live with the love of Christ. We need, to, we need every moment of every day to love Christ because of his love for us. We need to sing like we love Christ. We need to live our lives, our days, like we love Christ. The, our love for Christ ought to season the words we say. It ought, to, it ought to change the things that we look at. It ought to change the way we treat the people around us. We every day need to say, I am amazed that Christ would love me this much. Today, in every circumstance, I'm going to live in the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to pray, but I want to tell you one thing. My, my goal today, what I've what tried to accomplish in this message, is just that you would be impressed with how much Jesus loves you. I, I, I just want you to be blown away. Jesus loves me. I didn't even realize how much Jesus loves me. And that all of us would respond in the way the Holy Spirit leads us to that love of Christ. How will you respond? How should you respond to the love of Christ? that you've heard about. You've heard about it a hundred times, but you've heard about it again this morning. How do you respond to the love of Christ? Father, 
I can't imagine why Jesus would love me like this. I can't imagine why he would pray for me in this most difficult hour. I can't imagine why he wants me with him. I can't imagine what would have driven him to die for me on a cross. But I know because of your word that all of that is true. And I pray that that will impact every, every hour of every day that I live my life. That I will know your love and then I will show you my, my love back. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In both services, let's, let's stand together.